Well, good morning, Gateway. It's a bit of joy for our family to come and visit here. My wife, Anna, and I have been here for the last few weeks. And yes, we do have four little kids, five and under. I don't know what got into us, but uh, that's how it all happened. So we have Ezra, Catalea, Aria, and Micah, who's a couple months old. Um, and we've really been encouraged our, in our time of fellowship here, even from the first Sunday when we arrived, just by your welcoming spirit, the hospitality that we've received here. So we are thankful to you for that. And as we've been looking through the book of Acts, we see how the gospel has been moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as I think about the gospel, and as we think about the gospel, we think the, about the gospel as something that's been done for us, right? The gospel doesn't say do, the gospel says it's done. The gospel isn't advice saying this is what you should probably do to achieve something. The gospel is news saying something has been done on your behalf and now you receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to look with you at a passage in the book of Philippians, a book that oftentimes when we think of Philippians is a book about joy in the Christian life, but more so the book of Philippians is a book about partnership in the gospel. It's how Paul partners with the church at Philippi to spread the gospel. So please open with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. And as you're opening there, I want to give you a few numbers. 79936, 11109, 95834, 94546. What are these numbers? They're zip codes. Google defines zip codes as a group of five or nine numbers that are added to a postal address to assist the sorting of mail. But I think zip codes do more than that. Zip codes, they kind of speak about the demographic of people living in a certain area. 90210, if you know that zip code, is the procedure zip code down in Southern California of Beverly Hills. 89049 would be, if you live there, you'd live in the most spacious zip code in Tonopah, Nevada. The zip code is 10,000 square miles, larger than the state of Maryland. 79936, you'd live in the most populous zip code. This is a zip code in El Paso, which exceeds more than 114,000 people. 11109, you'd live in the tiniest zip code, which is a two-block area across the East River from Manhattan. And so this is uh, in the smallest county. 95834, you would live in a, the most diverse zip code. Now, that zip code is not in the Bay Area, unfortunately. It's also part of Northern California. It's in Sacramento, where you would find people who are more unlike you than people who are like you. And according to Forbes, there are some zip codes that are the most expensive housing in the United States. That would be 94027, 94022, 94010. And if they sound familiar, it's because they're right across the San Mateo Bridge. They are Atherton. Los Altos Hills in Hillsborough, where the average houses range from 5 to 8 to $10 million. Now, there's certain lifestyles associated with these zip codes where people live. If you live in Beverly Hills, you're meeting actors and celebrities. You might even be a celebrity. You enjoy fashion, the red carpet, and big events. If you live in Atherton, then you are probably living in one of your many mini-mansions. Your neighbors might be Google's Eric Schmidt or Facebook's Shirley Sandberg, or now new resident Stephen Curry, who recently moved there. You might permit yourself to eat at a Michelin star restaurant weekly and drive a Tesla. If you live in Tonopah, Nevada, the most spacious zip code, you'll find yourself in an old silver mining town, 2,500 people living there, 
You probably live on a farm, ride horses, and maybe a tractor on occasion. And if you live in 94546 or 94542 or 94578, you enjoy sights of the peninsula. You take uh, quick drives to Half Moon Bay. Drive a Prius or Honda. You're graduated here high or Castor Valley high. Live in an 1,100 square foot home built in the 70s. Shop at your local Trader Joe's in your route for the Golden State Warriors that used to be in Oakland. Right? There is a lifestyle that is associated with the zip code that you live in. And as we're looking at the passage this morning, there's a lifestyle that's associated with a citizen of heaven. Let's read this passage. As Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, he is coming to a place where he is calling them to live a certain way. And I believe it is important for us this morning to hear the message because we need clarity on what is true religion. In the midst of the American gospel, other religions that simply promote moral living, what is different? In the midst of all that happens in lives, fires in the North Bay, shootings in schools, a family unit breaking down, we must point as a church to the only hope that there is in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, because Christ purchased us by his blood, we should be living in line with the calling that he has called us to. And corporally, as I think about the purpose of the church and Christ's Sermon on the Mount, he calls the church to be salt and light, agents of change, those who shine glory and those who sustain good in the society that they live in. And so Paul is calling the church to walk worthy. And in verse 27, he begins with these words. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened at anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. And so I want to call you this morning with the call of the Apostle Paul. He states it this way in verse 27, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And I want to call you this morning to live in line with your eternal zip code. And there are three points that I want to leave with you this morning that all have relation to the gospel. Because the Christian life isn't simply living out of moral principles, it's rooted in the gospel. If there is no roots in the gospel, then there will not be any true natural fruit produced in your life. And so the three things I want to call you to and remind you this morning is walk worthy of the gospel. That'll be the first thing that we'll look at. Stand firmly for the gospel. And then lastly, suffer for the sake of the gospel. Once again, walk worthy of the gospel. Stand firmly for the gospel and suffer for the sake of the gospel. Walk worthy of the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The main idea in this book is partnership in the gospel. And the term gospel is used many times. If you would look with me in chapter 1, verse 5, just flip back one page, you will find that Paul is grateful for the church, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. And here's the reason. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Yet there was an issue, there was something that was hindering gospel growth going out through from the church. And we find in chapter 4, verse 2, where Paul calls, where Paul says, I entreat you, Dia, and I entreat Syntec to agree in the Lord. 
There's some lack of unity. There's some disagreement, some pride, some arrogance. And therefore, at the very center of the book of Philippians, what Paul does is he presents Christ, the humility of Christ and his service to us. Paul has to write to them in chapter 2, beginning with verse 2, saying, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So the very first command, after Paul shares his autobiography of his life and what God has done in his life, is a command to live worthy of the gospel, to walk worthy. He had a to-do list, and he completed it. If you look a few verses before, Paul says, I really wanted to go and be with Christ, but for your sake I stayed here for your progress and joy in the faith. In verse 23, if you follow along with me, he says, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul says, I've done my part. I finished my to-do list. Here's the thing I want to call you to do, church. And in verse 27, he says, only let your manner of life. He transitions from what he has done, and now he gives them the responsibility of what they ought to do as a church. I'm going to stay for your progress in faith, and now you walk worthy of the gospel. This word of uh, walking or let your manner of life be worthy comes from the Greek word polituomai. I don't often use Greek in sermons. It kind of turns people off. But here it fits well because in the English, you can't really see the idea that this word comes from politis, which means a citizen from polis. Polis means a city. So you're a citizen of a certain city. And so therefore, you need to conduct yourself according to the laws and customs of the state. So when Paul is saying, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, he is reminding the church at Philippi, that they have this Roman citizenship that is extremely prized. And just as prized is their Roman citizenship, they should live in the same way in accordance to their heavenly citizenship. Now, Philippi was a unique situation. They possessed Roman citizenship, which was highly prized, which is similar to today, like our U.S. citizenship. Right? They had privileges that other people in the Roman Empire were denied. They had a right to a trial, a right to appeal decisions, the right to remain safe from torture before conviction. Therefore, Paul says, right, when we're going to be going through it in the book of Acts, Paul says, how could you beat and flog us? We are Roman citizens, and they became afraid. So there was these privileges. And Paul is saying, you're Roman citizens. You're proud of it. You recognize you have privileges that few in this world have, but you also have responsibilities, and those responsibilities are important. So just as you have these privileges of Roman citizenship, Remember the privileges you have of your heavenly citizenship and live them out. Worthy of the gospel. He commands them to do this. He doesn't suggest. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And why so? Just because as in the life of the church at Philippi, so in our life at times, what happens? We lack heavenly living. Sometimes we lack that heavenly mindset. We're not always measuring up to the profession. And here, in this case, the things that we notice in this church are things that churches tend to struggle with. Not thinking about others, 
maybe only about self, doing things out of selfish ambition. And yet what Paul says is what's going to get you through this is a call back to live how you should live. Now, Philippi, geographically, number one, was famous for gold mines, which means it attracted a lot of people to the area. But it was also a strategic gateway to Europe on the road called Via Ignatia, a highway that passed through the city into through the upper and the lower town. And so the life of the church of Philippi was constantly on display. People would come here and pass through a lot. There would be a lot of foot traffic. And so their representation of the gospel would be extremely crucial. That's why he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The idea of worthy is this idea of a a scale. And at times, uh, there's a Kiwi box that shows up to our doorstep once a month. Or maybe on occasion, we watch a Mark Rober video. And then both of those, they're science experiments that you're supposed to be doing with your children. And one time, we received a scale from a Kiwi box. And so the scale, what it does, you put on one side, and it's supposed to measure out on the other side. So on one side, we put a rock. On the other side, you would add quarters. How many quarters does this rock equal to? And so the idea is that the weights correspond so that they are equal. And so what Paul is saying, he is saying on one side you have Christ and the gospel, and on the other side you have your life. You have the decisions that you make, the words that you use, the lifestyle you live. Does your lifestyle live in accordance with the call of the gospel? Does it measure up? I was uh, at one time at a pastor's conference, and one of the preachers said, Dogs bark, dolphins swim, Christians make disciples. I can change that and say, dogs bark, uh, dolphins swim, Christians walk worthy. It's our identity. It's our lifestyle. The sons and daughters of a king act like a king. The sons of millionaires act like millionaires. They don't check prices of what they should be buying. There's a lifestyle associated with each person. And so citizens of heaven walk in line with their new status. They know the king of the kingdom, and they walk accordingly. Now, as we think about living worthy of the gospel, a question that arose as I was studying this is, what does the gospel mean? What, is it, what does it mean to, be, to live a life worthy of the gospel? I want you to look with me in chapter 2. A few verses later, Paul explains to us what this looks like. And he begins in verse 3. He says, do, not, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So counting others more significant, selfless living. In verse 4, he continues, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So you're not only looking to yourself, but looking to others. Again, selfless living. As we look at verse 5, Paul calls them to have this mind or the same attitude that's in Christ Jesus. And when he then lays out the gospel story, what he says is that Christ was the one who was selfless. Christ was the one who was serving. In verse 6, he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's the idea of, uh, of uh, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, correct? He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, that's counting other people's interests more than your own interests as a servant. And he humbled, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
So the questions arise when we're thinking about living in our life in line with the gospel. Do we do things from selfish ambition or count others more significant? Do we look only at our own interests or the interests of others? And this kind of thinking and mindset that we are called to live is going to overflow into forgiving because Christ forgave us. Reconcile broken relationships because Christ reconciled us to himself. Serving because he first served us. Sacrificing because he first sacrificed us. We love our wives as Christ loved the church because Christ first loved the church. He gave us an example. Wives submit because that's what the church does to Christ. We see that we give in, in Corinthians when Paul says we're supposed to be tithing. He reflects it back to Christ who became poor for our sake that we might become rich. See, everything is rooted in the gospel. And if the gospel does not drive what we do, then it'll be hard for us to live this out. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Not simply worthy of the Bible, not be worthy of Christian conduct, but the gospel. Because when the gospel touches us and permeates every aspect of our life, our life naturally overflows into right living. The gospel is the centerpiece. This is why we're here this morning. We rehearse the gospel as we gather on Sunday. We exist as a church to proclaim the gospel. We read scripture to grow deeper in the gospel. We fellowship to share the fruit of the gospel. We take the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of the gospel. We confess to experience the power of the gospel. And so the natural outcome is going to be that we as a church and individuals are living out Christ's commission, being salt and light in this world. And this is what we see in the next chapter in verse 15, where Paul says, do not do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a beautiful thing. I heard a quote once. The author said, The most important weapon against the enemy is not a stirring sermon or a powerful book. It is the consistent life of believers. The consistent life of believers that are living in line with the gospel, that are living worthy of the gospel. Those who are watching the conducts of our life, those who are watching our marriages and our raising of our children and how honest we are at work or hardworking we are, let your life, manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. As I think about this call, it's a high call in our life. We have to ask ourselves the question, how do we do this? I think part of the answer is that this has already been done, Correct. In the cross, in Christ, he has made us a new creation. We have a new identity. We are citizens of heaven. Therefore, we have new treasures and new desires. We have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. God in Christ regenerated us. We're transformed by the gospel. So God is not going to call us to do something that he doesn't already provide the means for us to accomplish it. But look, it's also the gospel of Christ. It's not just the gospel. It's the gospel of Christ. It's about a person. It's about Jesus Christ himself who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. And in Colossians we read, seek the things that are above where Christ is. When we savor Christ, all our decisions are going to be in line with the gospel. Look what Paul said just a few verses earlier in verse 21 of chapter 1. He says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is Christ. And when I don't have Christ, or when I lose everything in this world and I die, it's gain because I receive Christ. 
He didn't say to live his career, kids, spouse, approval, cars, homes, hobbies, to live as Christ. When Christ is precious to us and our treasure, then we walk worthy. We put on the gospel lens. Where our treasure is, there our heart is also. We know the words of Christ and everything flows out of our hearts because it is the control center of our life and what rules our hearts is going to rule our lives. And so naturally, as Christ is the center of our solar system as the sun, all the planets orbit properly. All of us have a certain lifestyle that we live based on our priorities and preferences. We don't even think about how we live at times. We desire things and we just do them. They overflow out of our priorities that we have preferences. When I live, I don't pause and think of every moment about what I'm going to do. If I'm hungry, I'll just go to rock and roll sushi or in and out. If I want some fresh air, I'm going to go to the marina or Lake Chabot or Mount Diablo. If I want to relax with my wife after we put the four crazy uh, fireworks to sleep, right, then we're going to play Monopoly Deal or watch Shark Tank. If I want to feed my soul, I open up the Puritans and read Edwards and Owen. This happens naturally because this is a lifestyle. I don't think about it. It just comes naturally. And Paul is saying that when you treasure Christ like he was treasuring Christ, your lifestyle is going to naturally line up with the call of the gospel. Whatever is within you is going to overflow in your decision making. Now Paul is saying, I don't want to look over your shoulder after I'm calling you to live like this. Uh, Look a little further after he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, whether I'm present with you or whether I'm absent, I want to hear that you are living this way. Obviously, the natural tendency is to straighten up when authority enters. Kids all of a sudden are angels when you walk into the room where just a few minutes before, it sounded like there was a tornado going on in there. Employees all of a sudden start working harder because they hear the steps of the manager getting closer. And Paul is saying, I want to hear that you're walking worthy, whether I come or I'm absent. Don't do it out of duty. Do it out of delight. Do it without a lack of accountability because you don't necessarily need external restraints because you already have the internal restraint of the gospel of Christ. Remember, Paul was still learning, Peter was still learning this lesson in the book of Galatians that teaches us that the restraint comes from the Spirit of God and not from the law. See, people are just afraid that if we don't have enough rules, if we don't give enough rules to the people, they're going to let loose and do whatever they want. And Paul is saying justification by faith is going to so transform your life that the things that you want to do are going to be in line with God's calling in your life. Peter was still learning it. Men of importance came from Jerusalem in chapter 2. He ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he distanced himself. And listen to what Paul says. He says, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? But the key idea here is living your life in step with the truth of the gospel. Peter was showing partiality when God has already broken down the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2, the wall of hostility that we heard last week. 
And so Paul cannot be at all places at all times, but he has this great desire for this church to live like this. He's going to visit them soon. He's going to send Timothy to check on them in the next chapter. He's not threatening them, but he's anticipating to be cheered by news of them. But nevertheless, this shows accountability. See, he wants to hear specifically, right? Paul can't take a plane from Rome to Philippi or grab the bar from Philippi to Thessalonica or the most recent Uber just to catch the, come to the church at Colossae. You would usually receive a letter, a report. This is happening in this so-and-so church. And so when he read the report to the church of Galatia, he said, oh, foolish Galatians, what happened? How could you quickly move away from the true gospel? And so he wanted to hear that they are standing firm in one spirit. So I want to ask you this morning, how are you doing in your savoring of Jesus Christ? Do you behold his glory in the word? The word is about Christ. Christ took the scriptures in Luke 24 and beginning with the, the beginning from the prophets and the Psalms and from Moses, he expounded the scriptures concerning himself. And Paul reminds us that we are transformed by beholding the glory of Christ. Well, we behold it in the scriptures. So as we savor Christ, we're transformed into the image of God. But at the same time, I believe we need accountability. Paul is given a sense of accountability, urgency. He's saying, I'm going to send Timothy to you soon. I'm calling you to live worthy of the gospel, but I'm going to send someone to check up on you. So do you have someone who is helping you when you are at times veering off the path? speaking truth in your life, like a Paul to Peter or a Nathan to David. And the most natural way to have accountability is commit yourself to the body of the church, to attend a home group, to be part of one-on-one discipleship where people can speak truth in your life and encourage you. Now, living in line with your eternal zip code not only entails you to walk worthy of the gospel, where we spent the majority of our time this morning, but also to stand firmly for the gospel. What does Paul want to hear? What is the content of what he would like to hear about them? He says that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So the command to walk worthy is to the whole church, but here he hones in more in the individual life. There's great power when people come together for a cause. And we see that all around us today. People standing firm today who have strong convictions about certain beliefs, they come together and they're much stronger together than they are individually. Zuckerberg accomplished his goal to connect the world. So as more and more people connect, they stand together to fight against cancer, against hunger, to get rid of sickness, to stop sex trafficking, to dig wells, People also stand together for abortion, for animal rights, and for LGBT. You see, when people come together, there is, for a certain cause, there is power. And Paul is saying, don't live out this life individually. Come together as a church. Strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit for the cause and the purity of the gospel. Be firmly committed in your conviction. Now, this illustration that he uses of standing is taken from the military. Paul is saying, don't give up an inch of ground. 
No matter how hard your adversaries are pressing in around you, don't give up even an inch of ground. Christian life is a battleground. Yes, we're sons in a family enjoying fellowship. Yes, we're servants and furthering the gospel. But we're also soldiers defending the faith of the gospel. And this unity is to be found in one spirit. You're standing firm in one spirit, in one attitude, in one mind. Later on again, he says, having the same mind, the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, how does standing firm look like? What does it look like not to give up an inch of ground to stand firm like a soldier? Well, here he gives two ways how you can do it. Number one, you strive side by side. That's on a positive side. On the negative side, you're not frightened by anything, by your opponents. So on the one side, you strive side by side. You're striving in unison. And this literally means to strive together as athletes. Oftentimes, Paul uses this prefix soon, which is kind of like our prefix co. It gives the idea of strengthening in the, in the unity. And so his mind is moving to athletic games where he's seen sports teams in action. And it does really little good for sports teams to play individually. It doesn't really win championships. It doesn't really win World Cups. But there needs to be harmony to achieve the purpose. And so Paul is saying, you're striving side by side. You're not looking only at yourself. You're, you're looking out for one another. You have one mind. You have one attitude. You have the rules for the game, which is the word of God. That's the rule book. Your one goal is to honor Christ and do his will. We all work together. We can reach the goal. We can win the prize. And we can glorify God. What you have to do to be part of the team is to train. I can't help but speak about the Warriors. When we had our first son who was born, we were in the hospital in 2016, and they were playing the finals, and that's how God used that as therapy for the rest of the last five years of my life, is watching games. <laughs> well, the Warriors from 2017 to 2019 were one of the most unstoppable super teams in the NBA. And why so? Because their best uh, player, Steph Curry, humbled himself, looked out for the interest of the team, and recruited Kevin Durant. The weakest move in history, as some would say. He didn't do it to make himself look good. He did what helped the team to progress. And you see, this is the idea here. And they went to, to of course, five NBA finals. They won three of them. But they worked it together. There is this unity, one spirit, one mind, for the greater good, for the greater goal. We can't all play the piano. We can't all play the violin. We can't all have five drummers up here in the band. Each one plays their role so that there is harmony. Now, when there isn't, it causes divisions like what is happening at this church in Philippi. John had to deal with a man named Diotrephes because he loved to have the preeminence. He was the lone superstar on the team. It was all about him. But we, as a team effort in the church, we work together for the cause of the gospel. And as we are striving side by side, at the same time, we're not frightened by anything. Be startled by nothing, Paul says for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The picture is that of a, a timid or scared horse. They get scared because it suddenly is not expecting 
what comes before it, a reflex action, being startled. Paul is saying, don't be startled by opposition. You're proclaiming the gospel, the beacon of hope, the light of the world. You're speaking of Christ. Obviously, the natural reflex is going to be people are not going to like it. But you, church, don't be frightened. Don't be afraid. And who are the opposing ones? The environmentalists, those who drive around with the coexist sticker on their bumpers. We live in a day and age where we're told where we're constantly told to compromise from within and without the church. You see, Paul, he was thrown into jail, as we read in chapter 1, but he embraced his disappointments in his life as God's divine appointment because he reached a certain group of people that he would have not reached with the gospel if he was not put into jail. He was not frightened. He received this as something that the Lord was doing. And so we can't just strive for faith and then cower when opposition come and say, let's strive positively. Let's be an offense. We can't just hunker down against resistance without moving forward. We must have both offense and defense for the cause of the gospel to go forth. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking this is relevant for the church today. We're being told today by, by mass media, by the world, that man is just a bunch of particles that blew up together. He can do whatever he wants. Who needs rules? Who needs a God to tell you what you should do with your life? There's people who say that there is no hell. Annihilationists. There's people who say it doesn't matter what religion you're part of. All roads lead to heaven. There are those who say, well, the church is about people who have received Christ as their Savior, but they don't really need to submit to him as their Lord. And this is why evermore we need to stand firm for the purity and the cause of the gospel. This past week, I took my two older kids to Muir Woods. It was my first time there, although I've lived in the Bay Area for over 30 years. But we made it out to Muir Woods. And we got out of the car and we started walking. And they have, it's a very simple path, uh, paved Kids were enjoying it. Simple little one-mile hike out and back. And as we're looking at these trees, we came across some that had holes inside of them that were burnt out. We'd crawl in, take a picture. Then there was a tree that, was fall, that fell down. We would count the rings on it. About 200-year-old tree just laying there. And as you look at these huge, great redwoods that are all around you, that are standing over 200 feet tall, I came up to a little placard that was explaining more about the trees. As I was reading it, it said that the, the roots of these trees are located in the top three feet of the soil, yet they're 200 feet high. How does that make sense? Three feet, 200 feet. Why is it that they're able to stand against storms, high winds, any kind of severe weather that comes off of the coast? It's because the roots are intertwined together. The roots are intertwined together and therefore, they stand stronger together than they would ever separately. So Paul is saying, stand firm for the faith of the gospel. Now, as you are doing this and you are living like this and living out your eternal zip code, as you're attending home group and small group and you're discipled by someone, what naturally happens, it gets to a place where you suffer for the sake of the gospel. This is where Paul concludes. He said, 
This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but suffer for his sake. Naturally, what happens when a church stands firm for the gospel, there's opposition. When when we put our foot down, live worthy of the gospel, when you speak against mainstream living, against abortion, premarital sex, etc., when you make your opinion known, you call out sin for what it is, if you try to bring Christ into the picture as you live your life worthy, it might take a while for your coworkers or classmates to say something, but sooner or later two things will happen, as was happening all throughout the book of Acts. Either they will accept the gospel and ask you more questions, or they will reject the gospel, reject you and press against God. Same two reactions as in the book of Acts, salvation or rejection. Now, the way that Paul is presenting this idea of suffering is very interesting. He's presenting it as a gift. He says, church, listen up. I have a gift. You heard the call, walk worthy. Yes, I agree with that. You heard the duty, you need to stand firm. Amen. Yes, let's do that, church. And now he says, it has been granted to you that you should suffer. And you say, uncheck. Paul has this one last bomb really to drop. He brings the whole discussion full circle where it began in verse 12 of this chapter when he's placed into jail. What has happened to me has really served to do what? Advance the gospel. The suffering is advancing the gospel. And he's bringing it back full circle to them. And now he's teaching them, you need to have a different perspective about the sufferings in your life. You need to see them as that what God uses to move the gospel forward. We heard that a couple weeks ago, even from the book of Acts. God has a larger plan. He is working in mysterious ways. There's one more thing to follow, to to receive from Christ. And look how he balances it. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, okay, yeah, we believe, not only to believe, but suffer for his sake. It's been granted. The idea of granted has been graciously given to you. This is a gift that God has given to you. It's the difference between come over and we graciously request the pleasure of your presence. That is the idea of it has been granted to you, graciously given to you. It's a gift. The gift of believing and the gift of suffering and the question is, Lord, why? Because to those who are the opposition, it is a sign to them of their destruction. But for you, it is a sign of your salvation. For you, it is a sign that you are a child of God, that you are a member of the family of God, that you are really in Christ. Isn't that what James says and or first Peter says in First Peter? The tested genuineness of your faith may present to be perfect right at the day of Christ. So that the trials of our life, what they do is, what they show us is that our faith is actually true and genuine. There's an important phrase here. The suffering isn't, again, just for, for no purpose. It's for his sake. It's for the behalf of Christ, for his glory. Paul's deepest desire was to know Christ. And suffering was the vehicle that would lead him there. That's how Paul knew Christ so well. He embraced his disappointments as God's appointments. Suffering that comes from the evil and the sin in this world, but there's benefits to the suffering, aren't there? 
What suffering does is it confirms our faith. It brings us in closer contact with God. It's through the tears in our life and the suffering that we more clearly begin to see God as he, to a certain degree, is washing away the dross in our life through the suffering, burning it away. I think of Spurgeon, and I often quote this, 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 uh, this truth that he wrote. He said, we need to learn to kiss the waves that cast us onto the rock of ages. We need to learn to kiss the suffering, the hardships, the trials of life that cast us onto Christ himself. What suffering does, it provides a vehicle for making commitments real and tangible. How do you know if your profession is true? This is a privilege that the Lord has given us to affirm that we are his children. It's one thing to have, to know that you're secure in the hand of God. It's another thing to have assurance from the Lord that you are his. And so this morning, as we're looking at this passage, we see Paul calling this church at this crossroads city of Philippi to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And I'm calling you this morning to live in line with your eternal zip code, to walk worthy of the gospel, to stand firmly for the gospel, and suffer for the sake of the gospel. See, Paul was a pioneer. He had such a great desire for the gospel to go out. He was an apostle. He would plant a church, move on, plant a church, move on, plant a church, set elders in a church, hear about reports that are going on. He desired for the gospel to go out because he understood that the gospel is the only antidote to the condition of man. That Christ is the antidote to man's problem of sin. Christ is water for the thirsty, as we heard this morning. He is bread to the hungry. He is a vine that nourishes. He is a shepherd that leads. He is bread to the hungry. He is purpose for the hopeless. And there's such a great need for the true gospel of Christ to enter, or I would say to continue, in the Bay Area. Through Gateway Bible Church, through all the churches in this area, to shine the light of the gospel. Just as Philippi was in a place of crosswords, so today, living in the Bay Area, we live in a melting pot of the world. The gospel is the diamond against the black velvet. As the gospel is the diamond, the church is a prong that holds up the diamond. And so as we think about this this morning, may we continue living as citizens of heaven, living lives that reflect Christ as our treasure, which naturally proclaims to, which naturally overflows to proclaiming the gospel. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning that we have the great opportunity to come to your word and hear from you. We're grateful this morning, Lord, that your words are words of life. Where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. This morning, you have been assuring us and encouraging us and calling us to live a life worthy of the gospel. And we're grateful to you, Lord, that you continually remind us of what you have done for us in Christ, how you've transformed us and changed us, how you made us citizens of heaven, how you adopted us into your family, and now, as adopted children, you call us to be ambassadors of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for what you have done and that which you continue to do in our lives. We thank you that you are near us and among us, that you never leave us or forsake us. 
help us. We lean on you, and we ask that you would continue to do this in us and through us for your glory's sake. Amen.